Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, Jonathan interviews pastor and author Brian Zond, author of Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Farewell to Mars, Water to Wine, and Unconditional. Brian is the pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Jonathan and Brian talk about their transition from the charismatic movement to a more sacramental faith. Enjoy. Well, welcome back, everybody. I'm so excited to be able to welcome to Son of a Preacher Man, one of my very best friends, as well as one of the people in terms of pastoral work that I most admire. He's an amazing writer. He's a poet. He's a preacher. He's he's a badass, generally speaking, if I can say that on the podcast. Brian Zahn, welcome, my friend. I'm so honored to have you. I'm the son of a judge man. <laughs> you are the son of a judge man. <laughs> father was a judge, yes. Though you're not known for your judging. <laughs> you know what? Neither was my dad, even really? though he was a judge. You know, at his funeral, he died in 2009. At his funeral, a lot of people came. And after the funeral, a man came up to me and he said, I-, I want you to know that your father sent me to prison for armed robbery. And I came here to honor him because he always treated me with dignity and kindness and as much mercy as the law would allow. Now, I mean, how cool is that? Wow, that's that amazing. That my sent to prison came to his funeral. Hmm. So he was a kind man. And he, he really was the kind of person a community wants to have as a judge yeah so that's so cool uh did you was it a, was it a surprise to your family when you felt the nudge towards vocational ministry mm, you know all my family are lawyers hmm. my brother's the prosecutor in north kansas city uh, cousins uncles so i guess it may have been a little bit of a surprise but I had such a dramatic encounter with Jesus as a teenager that everybody knew about. You know, I was a Jesus freak when I was 16, and so they got used to it pretty quick. Mm. Um, but, you know, my family's always been supportive, so that's never, you know, that's never been an issue with me. I never had anybody trying to talk me out of it or that sort of thing. And what did, what, what, what did that encounter look like for you? What was that? Oh, it was, it, you know, I grew, I grew up uh, nominally Christian. My parents were, you know, intentional, deliberate Christians. I was in that atmosphere, so I'm growing up with that, but it just wasn't, it hadn't captured me. It was just part of what we did. Church was a part of our life, but I loved, you know, I loved rock and roll and basketball and girls. <laughs> that was about it. And when I was 16 years old, uh, just completely unanticipated, Jesus crashed into my life. Um, and overnight, I mean, instantly, I went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. And it was, it was dramatic. It was sudden. I know most conversions certainly don't need to be like that and aren't going to be like that, but mine was. Uh, back then, everybody called me Fry. No, nobody called me Pastor Brian. <laughs> everybody called me Fry. That was my nickname. And everybody, teachers, everybody knew me as Fry, which had to do with my fiery temper. Um, that I had this all the way from high school, I mean from grade school. And, you know, after a few weeks had gone by, people would say, man, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I would say, yeah, I can't believe it either, but it's happened. I mean, I, I had no control over the matter, it seemed like, you know. So it was very sudden. It was very dramatic. Uh, I was leading a ministry called the Catacombs by the time I was 17, which was, this is the Jesus movement, right? This is 1975, 76. I, I'm, I'm leading the Catacombs, which was primarily a music venue. And we were bringing in, you know, whoever, Keith Green, uh, Larry Norman, second chapter of Acts, Phil Kagey, Paul Clark, that sort of thing. And so I was like a teenage concert promoter. But I was also, I would also kind of teach at this venue. And that's what turned into our church. So Word of Life Church 
we began to call it Word of Life Church when we first began meeting on Sundays. But we had already formed a community of young people that was, for all intents and purposes, functioning as a church prior to that. So I tell people, look, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> wow, yeah, now, that's amazing. I don't recommend that. I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm not commending that, but it, it's it's true. It's how it unfolded. Yeah. So I've been doing this, you know, s- since I was a teenager. Would you, in terms of the early trajectory, I know, you know, you talk about being part of the Jesus movement. Would you generally describe what was happening as more or less connected to the charismatic movement from the beginning? Was it a charismatic expression? Uh, the Jesus movement always was, or at least at least it was very close to it. I wouldn't say everybody in the Jesus movement was charismatic. I would say the vast majority were. I was. Um, they were related, but but the Jesus movement was my entry point, and that's my foundation. That's what I still will claim to this day. I just want to kind of describe myself as an all-grown-up Jesus freak. I mean... Uh, and the way I describe it is the Jesus movement funneled me into the charismatic movement, which was good until it wasn't. Hmm. And then the charismatic movement sort of just led me into the general milieu of American evangelicalism. And we had sort of a word of faith bent that also introduced us to the religious right and all of that sort of stuff. And I'm talking about something that happened over decades right, 70s, 80s, 90s, until then early in the 2000s, I just thought, well, wait a minute. How did I get here? I'm a long way from where I began uh, as a teenage radical follower of Jesus. And that's when I had to go through some profound reevaluation and think, well, how? Because I felt like I just, like I'd stepped on the wrong bus and ended up in the wrong place, where I was essentially sort of, you know, middle-aged, middle-class, white, Republican, religious right guy. And man, that is not what I started out as. I mean, the early Jesus movement, well, the very early Jesus movement was prior to my time. I was a little too young for that. I'm really one of the younger ones that would have really experienced the Jesus movement. But it, it was a, it had a pronounced counterculture ethos about it. And I liked that. I embraced that. And you know, Jonathan, I read a couple of books last year. Um, Patient Ferment of the Early Church by, uh, who is that by? Come on, Alan Kreider. Yeah. And it, that was my book of the year. And then uh, Destroyer of the Gods by, I think it's a guy named Hutado or something like that. Anyway, they're similar books trying to, you know, what was the early church like? And I, I recommend them both, especially Patient Ferment of the Early Church. But in reading those books, it was interesting how often I would read a paragraph or a page and go, oh, that reminds me of the Jesus movement. Mm. That reminds me of how we felt. Because we were, you know, I didn't plant Word of Life Church. It just turned, it just became this thing. And in, in our earliest days, we were just doing life together. I mean, we would have meeting times, but... We were really together all the time, almost communal kind of living or very close to it, and seeing each other every day. And so I under I know what that's like to be a part of something that feels very yeah. uh, significant, and it's a movement. And every moment, your soul is filled with awe. I, I know what that's like because I lived through that with the Jesus movement. Um, I, I know that you probably can't retain that for long stretches of time. Um, but I then became quite alarmed early when I was about 40 and beyond, uh, how far we had gotten away from that. And we were no longer countercultural. We were, we were just assumed into general American culture with a little bit of Jesus fish on our back bumper. Now, I'm curious, Brian, because, uh, of course, I know your story well, me and you and a couple of our other friends. It feels like we were not exactly on the same track, but on parallel tracks and then converged, coming from our respective corners of our tradition to a thing. And, 
you know, all this is what I want to talk about, your story and the Water Wine Conference coming up, which is connected, of course, to the Water Wine book. This is your journey. It's where I want to go. But it dawns on me as you're, as you're talking about this, I don't think I ever thought to ask you this question before. Like, knowing a bit of where you came from and knowing that you did have that kind of rock and roll in your veins and that you... And that, I'm curious as to, like, what exactly it was that first caused in the trajectory you were on the cognitive dissonance like what what were the cracks what were the, do you recall any kind of the first moments where it started to not feel right anymore like what what was the catalyst for that it was a number of things it it began to feel thin it began to feel so accommodated so easy so comfortable within the wider american culture I began to be bored by it. I began to think, I don't need to read any more of these Christian books. I'm talking about in the genre that I was in. I thought, sure. I don't know what they'll say. I mean, just tell me the title of the author. Let me look at the back of the book, and I can tell you what's in it. Hmm. Um, and that's that's when I didn't know what else to do. And that's when I started reading, I started reading philosophy, church fathers, and classic literature. Because I didn't know what else to do. Actually, that was a really good move, and I did it more or less instinctually. Mm-hmm. I just thought, okay, I'm going to read philosophy, because I'd always kind of liked philosophy, church fathers, and just try to really read the canon of Western literature. Uh, as part of reading the canon of Western literature, and I guess it would also be church fathers, I read Augustine's um, Confessions. And I, I had a very strange experience I was about halfway through this book. You know, Augustine, mm-hmm. um, who has this very dramatic conversion. Um, and, you know, uh, some of Augustine's, for some of our, you know, theologically astute people that are listening, I mean, a, a lot of Augustine's theology wouldn't represent where I'm at, but this, that's beside the point. Uh, in, in Augustine, as I'm reading his story, his spiritual memoir, I see a man that really is entirely devoted to understanding the God who is revealed in Christ. Well, anyway, I'm reading that book. I'm about halfway through. It was June 4th, 2000. So, I mean, I, I mean, very specific because it was that kind of moment. It was a Sunday afternoon. I'm sitting outside. I'm, I'm just reading this. And suddenly I just closed the book and I prayed a prayer that uh, I just prayed this prayer. I said, I said, um, God, I want to spend the rest of my life seeking to know you as you are revealed in Christ. And that was that was as sincere a prayer as I could possibly pray in that moment. Whatever that meant, it came from a very deep place in me. Now, as soon as I prayed that prayer, the, this strange sensation washed over me, and I found myself wanting to say, come with me. I mean, I had to say it out loud. Nobody was around, but I, I, I wanted to say, come with me. Come with me and you won't get cheated. That was the exact phrase. Come with me and you won't get cheated. Wow. And it's a strange thing. And, and so I was trying to understand that, but I didn't know where, where we were going, what that meant. But I, but I knew I was being positioned to move on from where I was. Hmm. And then I remember the Sunday, and, and then a few more years go by, and this is fomenting in me and I remember the Sunday I stood in my church and I said I'm packing my bags from the charismatic movement no and I explained it I said I said when I say I'm packing my bags I mean I'm taking some things with me mm-hmm. some things that are valuable a, a belief that the Holy Spirit engages with us and we can experience God in the spirit that sort of value I'm taking with me um, but as celebrity, as, as uh, celebrity culture seems to take over the charismatic movement and there's a shallowness and there's an easy alignment with America as an empire, I said, I'm done with that. I'm packing my bags. Now, uh, I did it in the context of preaching, and you know how that can be, and people applauded and stood up and shouted amen until I actually did it. <laughs> mm, right, right. And, and, then, and then about a thousand of them over a few years uh, weren't they, they just weren't able to come with me. They just weren't able to go on that journey. And so that led us into a very painful time. 
And where was it in the midst of all this, Brian, that I know at one point you felt led to go on a fast and were introduced to like Dallas Willard. Where did that fit into this, to this journey? Uh, what happened, that was the end of 2003. You, you know, you can have, you can have thoughts in your mind that you will not admit to yourself you are thinking. I think people understand what I mean by that. And in the back of my mind, I would not admit it. At this time, you understand, Word of Life is a large church. We're successful by all of the metrics that Americans would measure success in ministry. I'm there, right? Large church, large staff, large building, everything's good. I mean, there's, it's, nothing is going bad, except I feel shriveled in my soul. I feel, to quote, who is it, Bilbo Baggins? I feel like butter scraped over too much bread. Mm. And I needed to find something more. And so I'm I'm feeling this, and I thought, well, I I have a choice. I could just sort of coast now. I mean, I've got this good thing going. I've got this good gig. I've got this church. I know how to preach. I don't have to work that hard now if I don't want to. I can take more vacations and just sort of coast along. That was a real option. I wouldn't have been thinking, but I am thinking this. Or I could go for it, and I didn't even know what go for it meant. Mm. I mean, I could say, I've got to find something richer, deeper, more substantive. And toward the end of 2003, I said, okay, I'm going to go for it. And what I did, and this is, I don't recommend this. To those listening, please do not do this. Uh, and I certainly hope to never do it again. But it serves to, to make the point of how entirely desperate I was. I began the first 22 days of 2004 doing nothing but, and this is not an exaggeration, nothing but praying, preaching at the appointed times, sleeping at night. That's all I did. Hmm. We have a prayer chapel, you know, at our church called the upper room. I just basically lived in there. I'd go home and sleep at night. But other than that, and I didn't eat. I didn't eat during those 22 days. I prayed all day long, most a good part of the night, preached when I was supposed to, but I really didn't even prepare sermons during that time. I would just sort of show up and preach, which is not like me, but mm. it was a very unusual time. Uh, and, you know, you'll lose a lot of weight if you don't eat for 22 days. Yeah. And and I got really, I got down to 130 pounds. Wow. I was pretty thin before we started. And then I got down to 130 pounds. And I looked, <laughs> I looked like I was dying. People were worried about me. Um, people thought I was dying. I thought I was dying. I was dying. Mm. <laughs> I mean, to use Richard Rohr language, the whole, I would, the whole yeah. first half of life was dying. But you understand, I'm, I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm just this desperate. And I I kind of did think, though, I kind of thought that having gone through that period of time, that God would, you know, the heavens would open. And there would be just, you know, some epiphany, some grand revelation, some new dimension of blessing. And instead what happened, uh, instead of heavens rolling back and an epiphany granted, it was like all hell broke loose. Mm. For the first time in more than a decade. And we had problems in the church and staff were leaving and people got mad at me and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And it, it was a very difficult time, but it was around that time that I prayed a prayer. And I'm, I'm telling these stories, understand these stories are, are scattered over many, many years. So sure. I don't want people to get the idea that I have these kind of experiences every day. You know, I have these experiences once every few years, but, but I did pray. And I, and I felt like I just I needed to find a way forward. I was reading Church Fathers' philosophy literature, but I needed something contemporary. And Jonathan, I was shockingly, embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. Mm. Remember, I'm just I'm from the Jesus movement, and there's things I can commend about the Jesus movement. I've spoken fairly positively of it thus far, but we also had a pretty uh, jaded view of any kind of serious education any kind of seminary sure. education. There was a latent anti-intellectualism in, in it. And so I was just so ignorant of anything contemporary that was of worth and value and could be considered serious theological endeavor. But I prayed one day. I said, God, show me what to read. 
I was in my house, and I said, God, show me what to read. And maybe, I don't know, two or three minutes later, Perry, my wife, walks in the room. She doesn't know what I've prayed. She just walks up to me, hands me a book, and says, here, I think you should read this. <laughs> it was one of those real goosebump moments where I prayed, God, show me what to read. My wife walks in, hands me a book, says, here, I think you should read this. And it was Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. And that was, that was like someone kicked open a door. Hmm. And I read that book. And you know how, how one thing can lead to another. One yeah. once you find strand. And as I look back, this was 2004. And then 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8. When I look back on what I read during that time, it's kind of a feat. It's kind of like I'll, I'll never do that 22-day fast thing again. Hmm. I, Lord, I hope not. And as much as I enjoy reading, and I'm, I read, I think, pretty prolifically, that period of time, I mean, it was, it, was, it was a feat in that I was reading, I would usually start reading about 6 p.m., and I'd read till midnight, and I did that almost every night hmm. for four or five years. And never, ever as like an assignment or I have to do this, it was I had struck gold. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't pull it on the ground fast enough. So I'm reading N.T. Wright and Walter Brueggemann and Carl Barton and Stanley Hirewas and John Howard Yoder and David Bentley Hart, Rene Girard. Uh, and that, that was my seminary. I had my late night seminar I went to. I tell you something, Brian. I'm so fascinated because I keep hearing more of these stories that I hadn't heard before. I was just a few weeks ago, I was speaking at the pastor's priest and God's retreat that my good friend Aaron Nikos was putting on. And Aaron was sharing kind of his testimony going wherever direct, whatever movement it is that we're in or where we're moving now. And it all started with him with stumbling into the divine conspiracy by Dallas Willard in his early twenties. I know that started it for me because I literally had never heard a sermon on the kingdom of God. It's like that. I, I, I'm just amazed right now at, because I feel like it's not like there's some formal research or study, but it's like how many pastors and church leaders had the door kicked open by Dallas Willard? And what was it about that book in particular, you know, that so captivated so many of us to push us on that journey? I just think it's interesting how that's just such a consistent gateway drug in so many of the stories. Like there's got to be something of the spirit, like mysterious in that. You know, I've heard this over and over and over. Um, I mean, a lot. I met his daughter recently. I spoke at an event that she was attending, which kind of made me a little nervous. Crowds don't make me nervous. Individual people can make me nervous. Mm. I can preach in front of a big crowd. Nah, I'm not nervous. I remember the first time I preached with Walter freaking Brueggemann sitting in, you know, I thought, what's wrong with this picture? You know? I was there for that, and you did great, by the way. That was a great sermon. <laughs> well, I just, because I, I, I have it right here in front of me, I just picked it up. Um, Richard Foster wrote the foreword to um, Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy, and here's, here's a little bit what he says. And this, this will give people an idea of how some of us feel about this book. The Divine Conspiracy is the book I have been searching for all my life. Like Michelangelo's Sistine Ceiling, it is a masterpiece and a wonder. I would place divine conspiracy in rare company indeed, alongside the writings of Diedrich Bonhoeffer and John Wesley, John Calvin and Martin Luther, Teresa of Avalon, Hildegard of Bingen, and perhaps even Thomas Aquinas and Augustine of Hippo. If the Perusia tarries, this is a book for the next millennium. Mm. That last line, though, if the Perusia tarries, this is a book for the next millennium. He wrote this, you know, somewhere in the mid, late 90s. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it turned out to be true hmm. that lots of people, including lots of pastors and Christian leaders, got a hold of this book, and it sort of resituated them with a, a, a perception, an understanding of the kingdom of God that is helping us navigate into the 21st century. Hmm. That was the book that, I, I just always say it gave me new eyes, because I, I finally saw the kingdom of God. Um, you know, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and Nicodemus is confused because he can't just take the cheap argument that this Jesus guy is of the devil, 
but he doesn't belong to the Pharisee movement. And Nicodemus is confused, and Jesus just says, well, look, Nick, unless you are born, he literally says born from above, but it's an idiom that means to repeat something, to do it again, to start it over, like like a band leader in a rehearsal would say, okay, guys, let's take it from the top. So Jesus, in effect, is saying, Nicodemus, unless you rethink everything, you will never be able to see the kingdom, even though it's here. Even though it's it's breaking in, it's happening right now, you could miss it. Mm-hmm. For me, the divine conspiracy opened my eyes to the kingdom of God that is present among us, and that changed everything. So this, as you go through this transformation, which you write about eloquently in uh, Water to Wine, and by the way, I, you know, I've endorsed the last couple of Brian's books. I can't recommend them highly enough. Uh, Sinners in the Hands of Loving God, his most recent, is amazing. But um, if you were to kind of sum up like the the two or three biggest paradigm shifts, like what what were the real hinge points in all that? Like what were the were the ground beneath your feet that shifted? What were the two or three things that were like the most cataclysmic? Probably the first thing I would say, it's related to perceiving the kingdom of God, to actually understanding that the work of Christ is not primarily um, to bring what we think of as individual salvation, which then we mean tickets to heaven, so that you go to heaven when you die. Uh, But rather, salvation is best understood as a kind of belonging. We belong to the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus never talked much about what we call salvation. He didn't use the word salvation much. I think he uses it once or twice. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, uh, uses it a lot. But here's the thing. What Jesus talks about, in fact, I would go so far as to say everything Jesus ever did or said was an enactment or an announcement of the kingdom of God. That's all he ever talked about. Uh, on the other hand, Paul doesn't talk about the kingdom of God much, a few places, but not much, but he's talking about salvation yeah. all the time. Here's the thing. They're not talking about two different things. Mm-hmm. What Jesus tends to call the kingdom of God, Paul tends to call salvation. And what Paul tends to call salvation, Jesus tends to call the kingdom of God, but they're talking about the same thing. So once I began to see that, that it wasn't simply, okay, I've got my ticket to go to heaven when I die, um, no, I'm, I'm invited into this alternative society that is built around Jesus that is a direct challenge to the principalities and powers, mm. the very rich, the very powerful, the very religious, the institutions they represent, and the spirit that animates it all. And that this is particularly pronounced in how Christ challenges empire. Okay, now now I'm starting to answer your question. This was a huge shift. It actually occurred to me while I was reading the book Demons by Fyodor Dostoevsky, who is you know, one of the top three or four influences in my life. You know, Perry, Bob Dylan, and Fyodor Dostoevsky. <laughs> I love that list. <laughs> love everybody on that list. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I won't. I, I don't know if I can unpack how it was that reading the Book of Demons helped me to see the nature of empire. But I remember the passage I was reading, and it struck me so profoundly uh, that I walked out of my house, just still holding that book, and I'm like, I walked for a mile, just stunned and thanking what I had just seen. Now, let let me clarify some things. By empire, here's what I mean by empire. Empires are rich, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history. This is what God is opposed to. God loves nations, mm. you know, with 
ethnicity and their diversity and language and culture and all of that. God celebrates that, but God is opposed to empire, and this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture, literally from Genesis to Revelation, especially pronounced in books like Exodus, parts of Isaiah, Jeremiah, certainly Luke and Acts, and most of all, I guess, the book of Revelation. But the, the thread is all the way through the entire canon of Scripture. The reason God is opposed to empire is what empires claim for themselves, these rich, powerful nations that claim a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history, is the very thing that God promises to his son. So empire, by which primarily superpower, that's how we mm-hmm. use that language, always position themselves to be in opposition to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to the kingdom of Christ. Well, once I saw that, then my religious nationalism you know, completely collapsed. And I understood, you know, I saw, I saw it today, Jonathan. I was driving home a different way because I had to go by somewhere else today, coming home from church. And I drove past a Baptist church that out front has a, a flagpole with flags on it. They only have one flagpole, but they have two flags. They have uh, the American flag, and they have the so-called Christian flag. Now, I'm not a big fan of the Christian flag. It's it's not an ancient iconography. It's a modern conflation of the American flag and you know a cross. But let's just let's just set that. Let's take it for what it espouses to be. Mm-hmm. That it is a flag that represents uh, Christianity or the Kingdom of Christ. Of course, you know how they're arranged on the single flagpole. American flag on top, the Christian flag subordinate to it. And I think that's a moment of unintended truth-telling, that their allegiance to Christ is actually penultimate, subordinate to their primary identity as Americans. Mm. Uh, I'm talking about this, this is one of the most profound things that changed me. Uh, now, if someone pushes back on this, oh, you know, you're making too big a deal about that, I, I, I suggest an experiment then. Simply reverse the flags and see what happens. Hmm. Just, just reverse them. Just take them down and say, no, you know, we love America. It's great, but that's ultimate. Our primary allegiance is to Christ, so we're going to reverse the order of the flags, run them back up the flagpole, and see what happens. Hmm. You know, all hell will break loose, and you'll have a church split, and people will be angry, and... Uh, I couldn't have seen that in 1995, let's say. Although it's interesting, Jonathan, I was attuned to this when I was a teenager. Hmm. I mean, when I first encountered Christ, I mean, I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I just knew that that killing is incompatible with following Christ. I would have said, yeah, no, if you're going to be, if you're going to follow Christ. Waging war is incompatible with that. I knew that when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. And then I got talked out of it, right? Yeah. And But I had an, an initial instinct that this was correct and then, again, got talked out of it. So uh, I began to see Christendom for what it is. It's, it's the attempt to have a congenial relationship between empire and the church, but what happens is that the church ends up as serving as a kind of chaplain to empire, and then what happens is Christ is demoted from actually being Lord to secretary of afterlife affairs, mm-hmm. right? Jesus' task is to get us into heaven when we die, but in the meantime, we're free to let Caesar run the world. Even as I, even as I talk like this, I, you know, it may answer the question. People say, "How how did you lose five? How did you lose a thousand people in your church, Brian?" <laughs> well, preaching like that, yeah, uh, talking yeah. about these things that that was a primary thing, and then also uh, becoming aware that my that I wanted to belong to a church that wasn't thirty years old or a hundred years old or five hundred years old. I wanted to belong to the church that was. 2,000 years old. Mm. And so I wanted to embrace the entire church in historical length and ecumenical width. Mm. And and that was also a a really profound change where I began to love and become 
knowledgeable of the entire body of Christ. Uh, pe people that gain a sense of belonging through a antagonistic tribalism mm -hmm. uh, are threatened by that. And if they hear me say things like, you know, I can, I mean, if things have just been different, I could, I could imagine myself belonging to any of the major traditions within the Christian menorah, I describe it as. I mean, I could be Orthodox, I could be Catholic, I could be Anglican. I am some form of Protestant or Evangelical, mm -hmm. Anabaptist. I certainly have some of that in Charismatic Pentecostal. Where do you feel most at home now? Uh, you know, if, if I happen to find myself in a place where, this is rare, but where I don't have an obligation to preach, or um, I'm just, you know, I, I want to find some people to worship with, and I'm traveling, I generally go to some form of Anglican. Mm -hmm. The reason I do that is I like the liturgy. I like uh, an aesthetic sensibility. I like, and this is this is very important. I want to, if it's you know if it's a Sunday, I want to be with people who are going to have Eucharist and offer it to me as I am. Yeah, if you follow what I'm saying there, which nar which so narrows that, the list quickly. <laughs> it narrows the list really quick. Um, but I'm very comfortable around Catholics, and and uh, when Perry and I walked the Camino de Santiago in the fall of 2016, our 500-mile walk across Spain, um, I, I I don't know if this is a sin. I confessed it to one of my nun friends. She said, I told her, I, I said, I, I have a confession to make. She says, well, I'm not a priest. I can't hear your confession. I said, you can hear my confession. She said, okay. I said, when Perry and I walk the Camino, I'm going to pass myself off as a Catholic because I want to receive communion. <laughs> uh, 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 so I'm just, I'm just going to pass myself off as Catholic. And she laughed and she said, well, hold on. And she went and she got, she got a, it was a St. Benedict medal. And she gave it to me. She said, here, just keep this in your pocket. Maybe that'll, you know, I said, okay. So I walked across Spain with a St. Benedict medal. And, you know, <laughs> probably probably three or four times a week we were in some form of Christian, Catholic mass because that's, that's what you're going to find on the Camino. Hmm. So I'm comfortable there. I, by the way, and I wouldn't try to pull that off with, among the Orthodox. I love the Orthodox. Right. I love their beauty, their liturgy. I would never try to yeah. receive communion from them. I, I, I don't know what the penalty is, but I right. shudder to think. <laughs> <laughs> Where does your um, what yeah, from kind of your? Oh, go ahead, jump back in. Well, I'm just I'm just saying I'm I'm really am comfortable throughout the body of Christ. I, I mm. I'm a non-denominational pastor, right? I don't even believe in that, but it's huh. just what happened. You know, I'm just playing the yeah. cards that were dealt me. This yeah. is how it happened. So I'm making the most of it. I think, well, okay, then I'm going to travel widely and broadly throughout the body of Christ. I know last year I spoke at an Orthodox conference, Catholic monastery, an Anglican church, plenty of Protestant churches, mainline type churches. Uh, I, I, I spoke at an Anabaptist seminary, and I spoke in some charismatic and evangelical churches. So I kind of hit the whole spectrum, and I love that. I, yeah. I'm... I like being able to do that. When you talk about traveling across the spectrum, you know, I'm um, I'm traveling so much these days, and I'm in any and all kinds of churches, and it's fascinating to me, Brian, how I feel like everywhere I go, and I can think of recent conversations with Episcopal clergy, a lot of folks who are charismatic, and everything kind of in between, who have who, who follow you, who've read your books, who've been to a prayer school, something like that, and I feel like... You know, and I'm 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 asking this um, somewhat selfishly, insofar that uh, maybe a sense of what you're doing now helps inform what I'm. I, I'm so fascinated by this journey of so you when you made this shift. Obviously, as you talked about, you you lost a lot of people. You branded a certain way in town. You're in St. Joseph, the middle of cornfield. It's like there's you know many ways I know to this day that you know, the message is popular, and yet on the other hand. I don't know anybody in my life personally, I'll say this, including people who are, there are preachers out there far more famous than either of us, but I can't think of anybody who's having specifically as profound an influence on pastors and leaders as you are. And I find that pastors and leaders across traditions are listening. I'm just curious at this point in your life, as you still pastor in St. Joe, 
And yet there's this other thing that's just happening. What, what, what is your, to the extent that you can discern it, like, how do you understand what you're doing right now? What God's doing through you? Like, what is this? What is this season? What do you feel like it's about? What is all that about? That, that, you know, still being a, a local church, but, and, and having the challenges go alongside this, but this broader kingdom thing that you're doing, like, how, how do you understand your own vocation in this season? You know, I hear from pastors, I'm not exaggerating. I hear from pastors every day. I'd say, every, let's, say, let's, say let's be conservative and say at least five times a week. Mm. But more often it's more than that. I hear from pastors, you know, they find a way to contact me, Twitter, Facebook, somehow they, they, they find an email, you know, they, they find a way to get to me. And they're telling me their story. And... I, I take I take these all that um, they would entrust me with their story. I don't treat it lightly, but I do also recognize there's a template to them. Mm. The stories do have a similar sound to it. And whatever this thing is that is happening right now, Jonathan, I can say anecdotally, but I think I'm right, that it's bigger than what we think. Yeah, I think so. But everybody's a little, everybody's a little nervous. Because um, there are a lot of pastors out there in the general broad term of evangelical who are going through what I went through 14 years ago. They're going through it over the last maybe three or four or five years. And they're, they're, they're hopeful that there really is something richer, deeper, better, that water can turn to wine. On the other hand, they're terrified that if they really start embodying this and, and, and speaking from this, that they're going to lose their job, mm-hmm. you know. And, I mean, we, we don't want to be overly idealistic about this. I mean, we want to be idealistic, but, you know, we're talking about men and women that this is their vocation. This is also how they provide for the families and the idea of suddenly being without that job is terrifying to them. Yeah. What it is, I don't know. I think one of the reasons people reach out to me is if my story is a little bit unique, it's in that I stayed in my church. Hmm. I didn't go off somewhere else. I now it was it was difficult. It was really difficult. But today it's you know today I love where Word of Life Church is right now and just the culture we have and and we're in a really good place. Hmm. Um, but, but my situation was a little different as the founding pastor of a non-denominational church. I at least had the opportunity to try to do this. In other words, I didn't have a hierarchy that was going to shut me down or a board that was going to fire me. Now I could have lost everything. You know, it was a very risky move. I could have wrecked the whole thing. I think I came close at times, uh, but at least I had the opportunity to try to bring the church with me into this better place. And I think pastors appreciate that. They, they see that as interesting, if nothing else. And they're wondering if maybe they could do something like that. So that's where I find hope. Yeah. I, I, I can't answer your question. I can't say, what is it? I don't have a, I don't have a name for it. And I would be hesitant to put a name on it. Sure. All I can say is it. This is not just some weird little off in the corner anomaly. Anomaly. Mm-hmm. It really is, and it's how I came up with the idea to do this water to wine gathering. Mm-hmm. I just thought I'm, I'm meeting with these pastors. See that they they contact me, and maybe I'll just type a few words of encouragement. But often they want to come see me, mm-hmm. and I'll always say yes. I mean, we have to work it out, you know. But. I mean, I'm talking about guys that get on a plane from Seattle and fly here to to spend two hours with me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, what if we tried to get people all together at the same time? Not so much from the idea that this would be a better use of my time. That isn't what was driving me. I thought, well, then they can meet one another. Because here's some pastor, maybe a pastor, you know, their spouse, they come to see me. And, and there's all, there's always they often strike me as very alone. Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I, I'll befriend them to the extent that I can. But let's be honest, you know, you, you can only do that with so many people. Sure. I thought, well, maybe if they came together, the Holy Spirit could orchestrate 
you know, you make some new friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I met Brad Jerzak and Joe Beach in 2004 and five, that was a saving grace. To, to, if I'd had to go all by myself through that, and then Perry, the, the main saving grace is that Perry and I were on this journey together. We weren't like different. We were both going through it together. And we sort of had this, you know, we were both very thrilled. We were excited, but the pressure was, was heavy too. And so we had this, un, we never spoke it to one another. She's upstairs. I hope she doesn't hear this. Huh. But, she, but no, I hope kind of she does. She would agree. But, but the unspoken agreement was that neither one of us could lose it at the same I mean, we couldn't lose it at the same time. <laughs> I love that. If, if, I was, if I was just, you know, overwhelmed and it was too much and I think, I don't know if I can keep going, that was her cue that she had to be strong and then vice versa. So we never, so, so we had one another. But as, as good as that is, I needed a couple of other friends and, and I see it as one of the real graces of God that I met those two guys. And then later I met you. That was a little further into the journey. Right. And um, so I thought, well, maybe I could at least provide an atmosphere where something like that could happen. I mean, Joe lives in Denver and Brad lives in British Columbia. So it isn't like we're across the street from one another. But everybody knows that today, you know, with the communication technologies. You, you can stay in touch with one another. Sure. And so we were, you know, what are you reading these days? Well, I'm reading this. Well, we would frequently all read the same book at the same time and sort of be discussing it. And, and I want to maybe provide an opportunity for that sort of thing to happen in the lives of more and more people. And, and by the way, this, this if we're just talking about word wine, even though I've talked a lot about pastors, it I'm not saying this is just for pastors by any means. I mean, this is... You know, I use the word, I use water to wine, but we can also talk about deconstruction or spiritual transition or you've come to the end of a certain way of trying to be Christian and you wonder if there's a way to move forward. We're talking about all that sort of thing. Well, I'm so excited about it. I'm honored to be speaking at it, hanging out with you. I mean, it's it's going to be, I think it's such an important gathering and important moment. I'm, I'm curious. Who's that? Oh, yes, I did. Will Matthews is one of my dear friends, too. I'm so excited he's coming. He's a great guy. Well, Love Will. I, I you know, I was out in L.A. last week speaking, and then so we got together for dinner, and I just thought, well, heck, you're 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 one of my friends. Yeah, you want to come? I'll pay your way. You can do some music and talk a little bit, and so 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 William's coming too. That's great. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm so yeah. He's he's a dear friend. I'm I am curious, Brian. I I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I'm because I I have so many of these conversations too, where I feel like I'm talking with pastors and leaders who when we they have these conversations and they come to you and they're looking for counsel and those will be the kind of folks that are coming to gathering as well. I know that everybody's pastoral context is different, but I so often feel I mean I'm just think I can feel this vividly from some of the most recent conversations I've had, such urgency and such pain of people feeling pulled in this more kingdom direction and yet feeling constrained by what they are. I, I know every context is different, but kind of ground level, when pastors and leaders come to you and, and the, the essential cry of their hearts is, what do I do? What, what, what's like ground floor, what do you say with that? What, what do I do with this? I think you have to learn how to pray well, or you will crack under the pressure. Mm -hmm. So you need some structures of formative prayers, what I do in prayer school. Uh, you, need, you need that. You need some friends. You can't go it alone. You need to be realistic. You need to decide, can I, am I in a position to actually bring this congregation uh, into something more kingdom? Or am I just, do I need to be honest and say, I can't do that from, I just don't have that kind of influence, that kind of liberty. I'll just end up wrecking everything. Then maybe you start looking for an exit strategy. Uh, I, I don't think that every pastor who reads Water to Wine ought to try to do what I did. Yeah. Um, I, I, so, you, so you need some counsel. You need to be, there's a discernment process there. But you really do need to discover um, practices of prayer that can sustain your soul through this journey. 
or else I think it just it becomes too much. It's one thing to go on a, a on a theological journey, yeah. a transition kind of deconstruction, reconstruction, water to wine, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that's that's that can be it can be harrowing, it can be threatening for a time, but most of it's, you know, beautiful and liberating. The problem is is when you're trying to bring a congregation with you. Yeah. That's where it's very difficult. And you kind of say, okay, how fast are we going to move? Um I, I tell pastors, look, you can't just, you know, you just read something from Stanley Hauerwas on Friday. That doesn't mean you read and preach that on Sunday. Right, right, sure. So, so just slow down a little bit. Yeah. Remember where you were 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, try to find a way. Tell it slant. Hmm. Uh, the problem, though, now, Jonathan, is we're in such a crisis mode in the American church. Right yeah, now. I think there's just, let's be honest about it that we are contending for the soul of the American church, and it's the, the clashes between Christ and between nationalism, uh, between civil religion, which is a rival to tr authentic Christian faith. Yes. And so now it's, it's a little bit more desperate, and so maybe, maybe we don't have the luxury to do it, even though what I went through 2004 and following was difficult and and rough it's we still hadn't reached where we are today where um it seems like a lot's on the line yeah right it, well it feels like i mean honestly i feel like it's nothing less is on the line than the future of the church whether or not there'll be a place for our sons and daughters like it's up in the air in this moment yeah and um if i'm if i'm proud of something if it's okay to be proud of something, I'm proud. Yeah, I could say, okay, that I brought a large chunk. You know, we have got a pretty good sizable church. I mean, you know, some little, you know, I've got a good church. But that's not what I'm proud of. What I'm proud of is that my sons and my daughters-in-law and my grandkids, my grandkids are all little, but my but my adult grown sons love Word of Life Church. That's amazing. And they love that. And they've told me, I mean, they've just sat me down and told me, they don't have to say anymore because I know it, but maybe, let's say, seven, eight years ago, they knew I was feeling the strain. And they said, hey, Dad, I know this is hard for you right now, people that you've done life with, basically all your life, you know, leaving you. But I want you to know where you've brought this church is why we're still here. Mm. It's why we're and, and we had the phenomenon, uh, really a considerable number of times, where we had people leaving our church that were my age, my peers, and their adult children staying, saying, Mom, Dad, I don't know, you can leave if you want, but we think you're crazy. This is what's keeping us in Christianity. Wow. So, now they don't have any money, and if they do, they don't <laughs> like to give it, but hallelujah. <laughs> Boy, isn't that the truth everywhere? The people that we're reaching, I think, like, well, they don't have any money, but they believe in what we're doing. <laughs> they like it a lot. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, and I really will uh, land on this, for because I feel like we are so moving on this same kind of trajectory. We know a lot of folks who are kind of moving in this way and, and from more kind of evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal kind of spaces. I'm wondering if now that you're a little bit further down this trail, even though I think I know none of it's new, but in terms of things that we're trying to synthesize and bring together and all that, I'm just curious if there's like... If there's a cautionary word, or there is, there is just a concern that's cropping up among those of us, are there, are there things right now that, like any significant red flag, say, uh, as much as the impulse to move in this direction is good, that there is there anything right now that, that gives you that gives you pause? I would say beware of the pendulum. I mean, it's it's almost inevitable that there'll be some level of reaction. Okay, I get that, but but at least be aware of it. So that, and, and it's why I, I just preached a sermon last Sunday where for the first time I really used the word deconstruction because people are using it a lot. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and, and so I think, okay, I'll, I'll use that word. It's in currency and I'll work with it. I'll use a, I'll come up with a metaphor for how I can work with that. But personally, I'm nervous about that because uh, it sounds very violent to me. Mm. Um, I would be careful about, I mean, remember at the center of this, there is something precious. There is faith in Jesus. 
And so I want to recover it. I want to restore it. It's like I found a precious icon that's been covered over by centuries of grime and dirt, veneer. I had to I had to work hard to get the red, white, and blue varnish off of my Jesus, but I didn't use dynamite to do it. Yeah, wow. And so uh, I I know that that people can see. The masses of evangelicals, and by the way, I never called myself an evangelical. Just this little tidbit here to the side. I was a Jesus movement charismatic. Hmm. Uh, I never called myself an evangelical. Yeah, me neither. I never self-identified that way. Culture, yeah, charismatics and Pentecostals, we go, no, that's that's like Baptist. That's not right. us. Right. <laughs> but it was the culture wars that drove everybody under the same tent. That's right. All right. But so so I understand that we there. it's very easy to look at white evangelicalism as capitulating to American nationalism in the ugliest ways and just hate it. I get that. But be careful about being reactionary to the whole of Christianity or something like Mm. that. Mm. Um, There are always people out there that are contemplative, that are pure-hearted, that know how to pray, that love Jesus, that haven't been swept up in that. I mean, say, uh, uh, you know, I alone am left. Yeah. And the Spirit says I've reserved 10,000 and have not bowed the knee to Trump. Mm. Yes. <laughs> or yes. how, right? Yes. That's so good. So keep that that would be my caution. Just keep mm-hmm. that in mind. Try not to be too driven by anger. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I'm since I know that some anger is there, but understand that anger is volatile. It's a dangerous emotion. Mm-hmm. Some of it's inevitable. I'm not trying to shame somebody that's angry. I get that, but just know that's that's a combustible emotion. Be careful with it. Yeah. Maybe maybe be careful about feeding it too much. Yeah, those are such good words, Brian. Thank you for that. Um, before before we close, two things I want to do. Well, one, um, first of all, for people who would want to join us at the Water to Wine Gathering, what's the best way for them to do that? To go to, to the website? They go to, if you remember, it's Water to Wine Gathering, because I think Water to Wine, you'll probably find something else, probably some wine. <laughs> but, but, but watertowinegathering.com, or if you just Google my name, because my name's unusual, that'll find you, that'll, you know, like Zond, Water to Wine, that might get you the book, that'll also show you the conference, and uh, seriously, it'll take you 30 seconds of Google it, and you'll find it. Great. It's June 28, 29, 30, here in St. Joseph, we're, you know, 40 minutes from the airport in Kansas City, so it's not like... I mean, we are in a cornfield, but there is an airport yeah, that's <laughs> 40 great. minutes away. So. <laughs> well, I love your church. I'm very honored you invited me to be a part of it. Can't wait to do that. I just wonder, Brian, if like if you would feel comfortable and know. It's funny. I don't think I've done this a single podcast yet since we launched Son of a Preacher Man. But I'm just thinking, I maybe because I, I'm having these conversations constantly in real time, too. Just how much people who are living at these intersections and processing these tensions, just the deep kind of angst that's there. I w- would you feel comfortable praying for us to kind of close out, specifically for people who are in this in-between place that where they just don't know what to do with all of this? I would love to. Let me pray. Father God, I pray for those that feel like it's a time this in a time of a dead end. God, I ask that you would somehow give them a new dawn, a new beginning, that when they don't feel like they can soar in the heights of faith, that they could just sort of maybe lean back into the everlasting arms. They could fall back into a place of trust. Father, I ask that you would help by the Holy Spirit. As we think about uh, Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father, I pray that, that we could remember that Jesus is the Lord of the church and that the gates of hell will not prevail. I pray that these that are maybe going through a difficult time would find some friends that would help them carry the load. It seems as if we can 
We almost can always bear the burden that we have if we do it in the community of trust and friends. So Lord, I ask that you would lead those that are listening today into healthy communities, gatherings of trusted friends. Lord, I ask that they could see the kingdom of God despite all the raging, all the anger, all the dissimulation that's going on around them. I ask that you would help these that are listening to perceive the kingdom of Christ and from that hope would revive. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Brian. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast and can't wait to hang out in June. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of Side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.